Hello and welcome to My Dilorama's Top Picks podcast. I'm Abla Kanslaft, film programmer, journalist and general researcher with my co-host Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic. In Top Picks, we discuss marginalisation, resistance and some of the isms in drama, documentary, mystery and independent films and series. Now in its... Now in its 11th year, My Die champions independent film and its use as a platform for underrepresented and often ignored voices. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, My Dialorama. And if you like what we do, you can like us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Short link is mydie.link slash Apple or Spotify at mydie.link slash Spotify and support us with either a one-time or monthly donation at mydie.link slash donate. So um, this week we will focus on a documentary about the co-working space we work. But just before we get on to that, I would like to, for those who've not seen it, recommend going back and watching They Live, the John Carpenter film. I found myself watching it this week. <laughs> Did you watch it? No. You've never seen it? No, it sounds slightly familiar. What year is that? It's uh, eight, 1988. It's a classic. Um, you've not seen Greece. You're not allowed to say that anymore. <laughs> it is not in the same league as Greece. <laughs> they... How would you know? You can only say that after you watch Greece, and then you can say, why was I harassed into watching this trash? But until you do... I have watched bits of Greece. That's not <laughs> I've done my due Greece. diligence. <laughs> But do you like musicals? No. That's really the question. Okay. Well, then <laughs> that, is, that says everything. I'm my mother's daughter, so I love musicals. Although there's a few I've I've been really puzzled by and I haven't been able to finish. But uh, The songs need to be really good to make it worth my while. Otherwise, it's just a good story being interrupted. Don't like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they Live, however, is a very prescient and interesting film. And for those who've not seen it, it's a drifter who comes to L.A. in search of a job. And he keeps encountering this preacher talking about the mysterious they, uh, which he implies are controlling humanity and they're rich and powerful. And through a series of circumstances, he ends up with a um, finding a pair of sunglasses that when he puts on, he starts to see some people's real faces and it turns out that some of the people mostly the powerful people around us are actually aliens and the whole world we live in a bit like the matrix is created by them and we can't actually see the real world without these glasses but once we put them on turns out that it's actually uh, covered with subliminal messages like you know consume work sleep blah 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 I just thought it was a really good fable of our times. I just thought it really worked as a as a satirical film. And it's really is it creepy. supposed to be yeah, satirical yeah. though? Yeah, it is. Uh, I think there was an interview with John Carpenter where he explicitly said that it was a criticism of capitalist society. Or did they make him say it was a satire? No. Okay, but that's pretty clear, though, if you say it's a, you know, right? But that's what satire is supposed, you know, good satire yeah. is supposed to be. Um, yeah, but it's it's a, it's a funny one because I didn't really, I've only seen his sort of uh, straight horror films, I guess. And um, 
I had no idea. I just, for some reason in my mind, I thought They Live would be a bit like The Thing. Um, mm -hmm. I had no idea what it was about, so I was pleasantly surprised. It's worth going back and uh, revisiting that film. But yeah, he's been he's been quite vocal, John Carpenter, about his critique of commercialization of culture and um, the economic policies of that time in the 80s. So no one's reading things into it that he hasn't meant to, to say. But really interestingly, and this has come out more recently for some reason, some of the the film has been co-opted by some neo-Nazi groups oh, that good claim, Lord. yeah, yeah, that claim that the film is actually about the Jewish control of the world and not just capitalism and general uh, oppression. But even so, like, I, I mean, I think you could adopt that depending on who you say the capitalist class is. And I'm not saying I agree yeah. with a neo-Nazi interpretation, but I just think that you leave that open because it's going to be yeah, wherever wherever you are, who's the ownership class who's dominating. If you're going to make the critique, right, and if you're in a country like the U.S., right, wealth is racially divided, so then it is a critique, but against, um, yeah, it, you, would, you would include that racial group in the critique is what I'm saying. And not that I'm saying I think that <laughs> theirs is correct, but I'm saying if, <laughs> the capitalist class is a particular racial or ethnic group, then you could make that critique. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Um, one thing to note, though, which is which the film is famous for, is it has the, I think, the longest or one of the longest fight scenes in the history of cinema, which is a whole six minutes long. And the star of the film is actually Roddy Piper, who was a wrestler. So apparently John Carpenter wanted to give him the space to perform a big fight scene. Um, that's and nice. That's the reason behind the very long fight scene, which has become a bit of a meme, really. <laughs> it's very funny to watch because it stops. They get tired. They're, they're both out of breath and they start back again. And so he has a fight with the, his, his co-lead, who is, and I forgot the actor's name, so I'm just going to... So, yes, Keith David. Do you know who Keith David is? No. Should uh, I? Oh, but is you haven't watched Community. I know. I thought I knew who was in it, but that name doesn't sound familiar. No. Chevy Chase is in that, right? And uh, Donald <laughs> Glover. Also, I should have mentioned Donald Glover first. <laughs> Those are the two I know. Um, and there's that woman who's in lots of stuff whose name escapes me as well. But I'm not good with names. <laughs> anyway, who's so the actor? Keith, Keith David. Uh, he only turns up in the, like, is it the two last oh, series? Of course I know Keith David. He... He's like, oh, he's the best villain ever. And what's he in? As a villain? Yeah. I, I can't think of it now, but more recently, <laughs> I'm slightly ashamed to say that I watched the soap opera Greenleaf. Oh. Okay. And um, I just remember being it being so jarring because he was a good character in that. And it was like, oh, he's always the bad guy. So now I'm going to have to look it up because I just can't think of something specific. But no, no, I really like him. <laughs> So okay. that's They Live. I haven't really watched anything else apart from the finale of Line of Duty, which everyone keeps going on about. But this is going to be, this is going to sound really out of date by the time, like even in a month's time, this is going to be completely irrelevant. But um, I really liked it. I really rated the ending. And I don't know if you heard, but loads of people, well, loads of people were dismissing it and uh, were trashing the endings, comparing it to Lost and 
all sorts of other series uh, with disappointing endings. And I actually thought it was really strong. So Line of Duty is a police drama and it it's built along the lines of, um, I guess, twists, surprise endings and whodunits. But um, I think what people were disappointed in was that the final scene, I don't know if I'm going to reveal much for those who haven't seen it, but along the, the six series, they're trying to track down a number of corrupt police officers that are basically running the show. So everyone was expecting a massive reveal in the last episode that the fourth man, the fourth person at the heart of this corruption ring was going to be like, you're not going to see it coming. It was going to be a massive twist. Now, first of all, there's no way that could have happened anymore because literally every character had been made the suspect throughout the, the six series. There was no one left. There was no one left to accuse that would come out of the woodwork and be like, no way, I can't believe it's him. So already that just doesn't work. But the the second thing, the issue I have is that I'm glad that wasn't the case. It wasn't a big reveal. It was basically kind of one of the middling officers. He wasn't very bright. He wasn't very interesting. Um, he was sort of suspected all along anyway. And yeah, people were quite disappointed that he wasn't this kind of sort of alpha villain who is pulling every, all the strings. It, basically, what it is, is an indictment of the corruption at the heart of an entire system. So it's not one bad apple and you get rid of him and that's fine and the rest of the force of this the structure is fair and um, equitable and accountable, etc. It's on every single level and turns out that his motivation was simply greed, was to make money. It was the easy thing to do and corruption ran at every single level. So I actually thought that was pretty ballsy as an ending, especially for a BBC drama. Um, so yeah, and I was I really happy with that. I prefer that as well. Um, yeah. Like you're saying, I... I it also came to mind, too, that that's more courageous because it is so easy to find the... Um, and in fact, that was a criticism of the celebration behind the verdict with George's George Floyd's, uh, you know, the trial for yeah. the... Well, the first trial, right? There's going to be more to come. Is that if you celebrate that or you don't understand the real problem, which, of course, isn't to say the family shouldn't have some justice. Yeah. You know, that's what everybody wants, but that's not a solution. Yeah. And that's their justice. That's not justice for black men and black people and really people in general killed yeah, in general, by yeah. police officers. Right. Um, even though it's, you know, highly disproportionate black men, which is why we focus on that. It's no, it, it is throughout the whole system and not just looking at it as police because police as we know, we watch lots of cop dramas. Mm -hmm. You have police who do protect and serve. So it's like, okay, so what is it about this institution being weaponized against black men? It's So it's not the people in it, right? It's like when they're deployed to be weaponized against that group specifically, and then why against that group, which is a more complex question. Yeah. Well, I guess it's not that complex. It's been answered, but nevertheless, <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's, not, it's not answered as an institutional question. It's answered as bad apple cop um, yeah you know, exactly because I, I feel like what this series does is make us question the entire police force generally yeah so that was uh, Line of Duty Great. and that, that's pretty much all I've watched off note that I'd like to mention anyway I, I don't know about you before we move on to WeWork 
I watched this series on Netflix by, let me just get up and I don't know why I'm avoiding getting up. It's like, I don't do anything all day. And then when it's time for me to move just a little, just two feet, I have to sit and think and try to wiggle out of it. It's so sad. Hang on. Let me grab my iPad and I can just tell you what I watched. Hang on. (laughs) Anyway, um, I don't know. I've been really um, into watching documentaries lately. Although I must say when I went to Netflix and I looked at the documentaries I'd watch, I'd watch so many that we've not talked about here but nevertheless i started with the netflix series explained and i started off with the episode about diamonds which i thought was well done okay so and they're they're short as well so 23 minutes which is always very good oh brilliant okay yeah no they pack a punch i mean i just finished the uh this afternoon the one around billionaires which i thought was not well done they took a bit of a coward's way out there i couldn't even believe it i was really surprised because one of the last lines they closed with was that philanthropy is good because it can be more efficient than government Mm -hmm. it's like are you ronald reagan what are you even talking (laughs) about it was just unnecessary why would you say that if but they had bernie sanders in it and i thought he uh did a good job as a talking head oh okay about some stats yeah so other than that no Okay, well, moving on to WeWork then. So, the WeWork documentary, or the making and breaking of a $47 billion unicorn, is its official title. So it's a documentary made in 2021, film directed by Jed Rothstein, and it follows WeWork, uh, the inception and running of WeWork, and then its collapse. So WeWork is essentially a real estate company, although it was marketed as a tech company by its uh, co-founder and main spokesperson, Adam Newman. I mean, it's a bit of a takedown of Adam Newman, who is the, um, so he's the co-founder of uh, of WeWork. Now, if people aren't familiar with WeWork, WeWork is a uh, co-working space that was set up by two uh, men in New York who basically leased or rented disused uh quite cheap uh, property and refurbish them and kit them out to make up uh, a co- uh, a shared office space. Essentially, it was massively overvalued. Well, that's the thing. You see, I'm really confused as to how we got to where we got. But basically, it was implied that he uh, didn't do anything illegal, but did enough to basically make the company's value crash. Um whereby lots of people lost their jobs and he still managed to end up a millionaire out of it. So what did you get how it got from a huge valuation to it crashing and burning towards the end? Because I find I found that process really hard to get my head around. Is your mic on mute? It is. Thank you. <laughs> it's like a bad Zoom meeting. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So based on what a talking head said, right my understanding is it had to do with the way he was measuring profitability. So he added a concept or I guess a line of a community adjusted, right? Abita to try to put value. It almost reminded me of a documentary I watched on Donald Trump when he talked about how do you value your brand? Mm -hmm. And it was like, they would include that type of value as a way to offset all of the costs because they were drowning in debt. So that if by doing that, they were allowing themselves to 
be profitable because the talking head was talking about that um, EBITDA is a way to refer to your earnings before, you know, expenses. And it was just a way to kind of offset things that are customarily included. And by doing that, people thought that, oh, this company is super profitable and it just wasn't. If you did things properly, let's say, you know, if, okay. if another company had come in, an auditor, then they would not find it. But that's what the whistleblower found out as well, that they were doing that, which is what the problem was. It's like they were lying about it because the, should we call her disgruntled? <laughs> but it's a typical story, right? Yeah. Of work, which is really a lesson to all of us that just because she was doing all these different jobs did not mean that she was going to keep her job. Is it the blonde lady who ends yeah. up finding that? So it's like the more you do, the more they want you to do. So that's a lesson, everybody. Don't think by doing two jobs, it's going to. Because she was pissed because she thought doing that type of thing, a bunch of jobs and making herself, uh, I don't want to say irreplaceable, but she was adding so much value by her breadth of experience that she brought there. That's how she was able to know people weren't doing their jobs properly and then do them for them. But that did not keep her off the ax list, which shows you they keep people who they like. It's not about being competent. It's about being liked. I still don't get I still don't get how how they make money out of thin air. I still don't understand how the whole valuation no, they getting, process they were works. getting investment. They weren't making money out of thin air. Yeah, right. But, because yeah. they did receive that VC money, which is why they needed that other infusion of capital to keep going. And remember, that's when he withdrew and said, OK, no, I can't do it. And they were expecting to get more money. Yeah. But it was only through his money that they were able to do that. Yes. So uh, I'm saying his, but you know what investor I'm talking about the the uh, the, the, the Japanese big, big yeah um, yes. Masa Sun yes yes so it was about really I think about well a few things right so I thought about cults <laughs> yes <laughs> yes um, and I was how ask you about that. even though one person was the only one his PA who was eventually promoted right but she was brought on as the PA. <laughs> was the only one who I think was honest about the void she felt. And maybe because she was the only one who'd been through therapy. I don't know. But she was really clear about that giving her an identity that she was craving. So she was susceptible to that and really yeah. believing that she was part of something big when in fact it was an office space. And that's what was so puzzling to me. It's like, you know, you're just like paying to be there as well. It's not like they're letting you be no, there that's it. as an office space. So I didn't understand how they thought he was more valuable than they were because it's like, you the the only way that ecosystem works where you know you have these companies that are supposed to be networking together and that's why you're bringing them in the same office because they can work on projects together and help each other out that only works because you're there so how did you think that he was important when you're the one working not only doing the work literally but paying to be there i didn't get that um but i didn't meet him however Remember when the corporate attorney was telling the story, the security black man immediately caught on and said, is this a cult? Like it took him five minutes. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know why they didn't get that because it seemed, I don't know. So anyway, so that was. So one okay. of the things I was reminded of, you'd seen, uh, you know, I kept banging on about the, um, about the documentary about Keith Ranieri and Nexium. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And I was just getting, you know, it was so funny because it was that Netflix series was playing in the background and they have one on cult, cults. So you should check that out. It was just, you know, 
starting when I woke up because I left it on when I took a nap, which was more than you needed to know. Uh, But yes, what about Nexum? Had you seen it? Had you watched it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think we watched the same documentary, but I watched a documentary on it. We never got to the bottom of that. No, that's true. Uh, There were two of them and I watched both. Then I became, I thought I was going to end up joining Nexium because I was watching so much (laughs) stuff about Nexium. Um, But it's the same issue I have with Keith Ranieri and Adam Newman. They're utterly uncharismatic and I can't for the life of me understand how how much power they acquire through their sheer personality. But you're being shown on a documentary that's framing them that we already know they're crazy from the get go. Not so really. I mean, come on, come on. No, because you watch a documentary about about Jonestown, say, okay, Jim Jones was I a murderer. He was a cult leader, it. but he was at least charismatic. Yeah, I think I would have been pulled in by Jim Jones because <laughs> he was not only was he preaching a gospel, but it was a gospel of freedom and exactly. anti-racism. Exactly. And, and cooperation. Like, okay, I can yeah. get with that. And you don't know what's going on in the background. <laughs> in his personal life, well, right? Clearly. You don't know that yeah. So, yes, I could see how seeing someone like that at church right? could work, depending on his preaching but, style. I'm sorry, but utter charisma vacuum that is, I'd say Keith Ranieri, but even more Adam Newman, I cannot believe he had that pull. And I think it says a hell of a lot about the society in which he operates that his really kind of cheesy messages actually resonated with people it was so inane what he was saying the the kind of stuff about changing the world that was utter bullshit no one would take him seriously you know what i was trying to find that i could not find was there was this because i watch anti-mlm youtubers (laughs) and because i i desperately want to write something about that so and so it it keeps me like interested in thinking about different things to talk about it's research but (laughs) <laughs> kind of because I'm, I'm, uh, well let me not go there so <laughs> one of them though had this checklist about things to look out for when it's not a real MLM but a pyramid scheme right mm-hmm. and, and not to say MLMs are any better but we know that pyramid schemes are more common and one of the things they listed was how you just keep repeating the same phrases over and over but I could not find this to reference so this isn't my idea this is someone else's and that's what I noticed about him he kept talking about that same line that didn't mean anything and no one said what does that mean exactly because I didn't even know what it meant he never defined it and no one asked him to define it like, what does building a community mean? What does changing the world mean? Because exactly. I thought, too, it's like, you you just have a tech startup. Calm down. You're not changing the world. You're not cleaning water. Right? No, <laughs> no. How are you changing the world here? And there's nothing wrong with that. I think, by all means, if you want to do your entrepreneurial thing, hey, by all means, let's just not get crazy and say you're changing the world here. But it is very much a startup speak. I was reading this article that was talking about disruption and how startups always talk about that. It's like, why do we think that's a positive thing? Disruption isn't always good. Um, And no one asked them, like, what do you mean by disrupt? What do you mean by changing the world? Why can't you be called a CEO? Why does the job title have to mean something else? What are you trying to hypnotize people with this language? And I didn't really get it. Like he and his wife as well, that whole, but I'm not into that whole meditation thing. And I would refuse to do it because I've gone to events where I'm just like, I'm not participating. And people say, why? I'm like, because it's stupid. And this isn't fifth grade. When I go to the principal's office, no, exactly. you don't have to do it. Exactly. You're just here. You decide what you want to do or not. I still paid to get in. So they don't care if I do it or not. <laughs> Although they had to go. 
they, they didn't have a choice but to go to those annual retreats. It didn't look that much fun to me. It's awful, but also the pair of them are so odd that I can't believe they were taken seriously. I mean, they claim they had fun on that in the camp, but you know me, being dirty for a few days and no. playing water sports is not fun. Yeah, and we can get to also the... I mean, everything's wrong about it. The fact that it's essentially a um, a drinking club that's what it is. People and they didn't talk about network race. around like drinking, convenient. not around shared interests. People kept saying, "Oh, it was just about some twenty-something things." Nope, nope, nope. Let's go deeper than that. I rarely counted a black face in there. That's number one. <laughs> then, uh, then it's like you have to have money to be able to do that. Like, how can you afford to be in this non-profitable startup for? years in in an office space like these are elite people and they never wanted to frame it like that it's like oh it's just our generation no 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 let's go deeper how you have the money and time to participate in this and maybe why it is and it's people that don't need to put in the hours because if you were you wouldn't be in an environment where everyone around you is just drinking you would need peace and quiet you would need a proper office but that was for the weekend once a year that wasn't you know they didn't do that all the time well well maybe but from what i've heard and um, from someone who uses a WeWork space in London, right? Mm-hmm. They're so unregulated. They're not, because they're unaccountable. So they're not properly regulated like a workplace should be. So on a Friday, I think that there was some, there were free drinks going and a party of people just crashed the place and and someone complained about it. This guy complained about it. And he said, and the, they had to write an email to this kind of faceless um, officer who then said, well, there's not much we can do about it. So it's... But that's standard, I must say, because I've worked in investment banks as a secretary. So let's yeah. be clear, bottom there. Not that I don't think administrators are important. I'm just saying I was powerless and not upwardly mobile. I just want to give the full context here. Because I think people do that. They try to say what company work for. No, tell me what you did. But they did have drinking every Friday and I could never participate because I thought, ah, this is work. I just, I can't yeah. do that. And coming from an evangelical Christian background where nobody drinks, it's like, it was almost like drinking with my mother. I can't, I can't explain it. It was a weird thing. But everyone certainly enjoyed it. And they worked long hours, so fair enough if you want to do that. But it never got rowdy. No, and but that's, was, that's um, the, yeah. a company holding think, their own drinks, dude. That's that, not like three people. I still people. think that's part of the culture, though, because there's also the expectation in the, which, you know, we'll get to when we talk about, because I think this is also an indictment of uh, VC culture and investment banking culture, that that drinking, just like my, uh, you know, my best friend works in insurance, and that's part of this work style as well is late night drinking with clients so i think it was just an extension of that because you don't have clients to take out so they brought the party to you so to speak on fridays so that makes sense it still fits into that culture but then it also keeps you from the reality well what kind of company is this exactly well exactly yeah (laughs) so it's not a community you're building you're not building people you're not building, building a community of people who share interests who share working conditions who share um a culture you're sh- it's just people drinking together that's the only thing well, they, they have, have a shared interest and you know what the, the only thing i kept thinking about like wouldn't that have been amazing because so back in the day i used to work for this nonprofit, and this was around the time of the first dot-com bust so because of that people were downsizing and we ended up in these shared office spaces and really it was just people who knew each other and Pardon, in the nonprofit world saying, let's share an office space. Like, let's find this office that has six offices and then I'll take two, you take one, you take one, and we'll have this common space. So that was fine. And 
really because of that, I kept thinking this would be great if it was an actual cooperative, not those shares they were lying, telling people, oh, it's like getting in on the dot com. You're going to make a bunch yeah. of money once we you know, go public. But an actual cooperative. As opposed to, you know, the three co-founder team taking all the money. Right. Yeah. But having it where, yeah, where it really was a because then that really would be a community. Yeah, exactly. But that's yeah. not a tool of the ethics really cool. of we work. No, exactly. And and it was interesting how they were able to do that with the language and the same with their children's school, right? Just using language to make people feel good and not really look at the operations and just say, oh, it's a community because they say it's a community. And that's just what it yeah. was. It's like, no, a community means you actually share resources but you share the profit too yeah i mean the schools i think is is, is even more problem like much much more problematic i don't think any civilized country should allow th that thing to happen you can't just i mean it's done here in england and i i'm completely mm -hmm. against it mm -hmm. just some wacko building his own school <laughs> and then charging a fortune for it and then making it part of the like the national uh, school setup that shouldn't that shouldn't be ratified by the state. That school should not be accredited as a school. Absolutely. Uh, but I hear what you're saying because it does raise the question, why can't that just be an after school thing? Or why can't it yeah. be something where they board? So, you know, your kid goes to school and then they board with them. So then the evening and weekends, they're indoctrinated. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. that's what they are. They are indoctrinated. No one's Which is fine, accountable. I'd, I'd be okay with it if it was my kids doing something I wanted them to believe. Um, but like you're saying, but why should it then replicate class because that's just what her school is doing it's like all the rich moms who think like yeah. me we can all just come together <laughs> we don't have yeah. to be worried about those other awful children who we're forced to go to school with no exactly it's just segregation and she never even said what it was again nothing was defined it's just like well, it was a play group basically it was soft play <laughs> it was know. some cushions what? and some bouncy balls <laughs> no i don't know but that was a whole bizarre thing too it's like I don't know what she thought schools did and <laughs> what that school was doing. Because it was something about, what was her mantra? I can't remember. It was something about making them creative or making them visionary. What was she doing with the kids? I mean, look, she's Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin. I think that <laughs> tells you all you need to know about well, where she well, stands. Well, I just don't know why she kept bringing it up. That was annoying, right? Like, you don't need to name drop. Uh, Stop it. No, but I think that makes her look bad, given that Gwyneth Paltrow is famous as a quack. I don't know. Is she famous as that now? Yeah, she's not known as, as an actress peddling anymore? utter oh, bullshit to morons. That's that's what she's famous for now. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, is she not acting anymore? Uh, I don't know. It, well, it, is this 1999? Are you serious? <laughs> Did you not know <laughs> about her website? No, I know about it. I I watched a couple of episodes of the Goop thing okay, on Netflix. There you go. It didn't mean she didn't act anymore, though. You know. So I just assumed she did because she does those. What is it? I always get confused between Marvel and the other one. So and it's just there's so many films I don't watch. So people can still be very popular. And I just don't know. Well, I just maybe you, she know, you might be right. What, but <laughs> I don't know. Now I'm going to look it up her filmography because I have like what is this still acting but it, she does kind of random stuff i mean i remember one time i heard she did this whole decoupling ceremony and don't get me wrong i think when you divorce <laughs> it's great for you and your ex to be friends and to go to therapy to learn how to be friends because you are connected forever you know you're still a family even though you're broken up. it may have to try to start a new family right 
but a whole ceremony and then to publicize the ceremony is like, why go that extra step? Just keep your family together because it's broken up now. Let's just be honest there. It's still a broken family. You're just trying to <laughs> be friends, salvage what you can. So it's not all in vain. And there's nothing wrong with that because, you know, half of marriages get divorced or, or more, right? A little for half. Fair enough. But why the ceremony? Why do we have to talk about it and play soft music as we watch? It's like, come on. I mean, it's okay, no, brand. Yeah, you know, good, good for her. She's yeah. managed to sell it. Is that good for her, though? Not everything needs to be sold. Like, what happened to privacy and shame? <laughs> I, I think those things aren't bad, necessarily, right? Um, and I think, yeah, they should come back. Like, why are you trying to turn it into something positive that you got divorced? That's not a good thing. And, I, and I'm not saying you should be ashamed for long, but... Yeah, that should just be a private family thing where you guys are trying to keep it together yeah. instead of an uncoupling ceremony. Yeah, that really irked me. Um, but you know, we'll wait till my first divorce, and then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> then we'll see. We'll see what I'm talking. Then okay, yeah, she still plays in the Avenger films. Okay, and I'll she's... take that back. I had no idea. <laughs> but uh, that is, uh, you know, that's Avengers. That's not her whole thing. I did love her in uh, Shallow Hell. I thought that film was so funny, although. Uh, but she was, I must say though, I remember her commentary around that film because you know, she is definitely a fat shamer. She will tell you in a second, what's up with that stomach do something about it. <laughs> On the one hand, I'm glad that people like that exist because it's better than people lying to you. Like you didn't gain 40 pounds. <laughs> like, at least she's like, I won't be that friend. I'm going to tell you the <laughs> truth, which I appreciate. Um, but she did like her, her analysis of the film and what it means to be like a fat white woman was very superficial. And I thought, oh, I was kind of expecting more from her because she always has, you know, she usually likes to talk. And that's all you have to say is, oh, I felt invisible in my fat suit. That's it, really? That's obvious. Thank you. I I'm surprised you expected anything else, but they- well, Only because the way she was positioning herself, and this was years ago, but yeah, no, I love Shell, how that film's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it, you're right, Jack. Well, it was, it was both she and Jack Black. It was funny. All the characters, really, so it's funny. <laughs> I have to say, I don't think I've ever seen the film. I've just realized. What? Yeah. Okay. I just remember the trailer. That's not a musical, so you have to watch that one. <laughs> I will. I think it, it is so funny. And I'm not even a Tony Robbins self-help fan, but oh, is, I like that. Is concept. he in it? Yeah. Is well, he mentioned he's in it? hypnotizes Hal because he's superficial and he's got it. He and his best friend, right? So you, it's always in pairs. You can never be superficial on your own. And because he can never find a you know his relationships don't work because he's not going after the right things obviously he gets stuck in an elevator with tony robbins who hypnotizes him to only see the inside of a person right so then that's when he starts dating uh um something about why am I confused about well whoever her character is that's how he falls in love with her because while he sees Gwyneth Paltrow she's actually mm -hmm. like a 300 pound yeah but that's how he sees Gwyneth Paltrow yeah that's I got then, that from the trailer yeah okay so then because his best friend doesn't like it because like I said you have to work in pairs you can't be shallow on your own he <laughs> wants to fix him and he convinces Tony Robbins to change it back because he's like, oh, that's actually making his life worse, not better. And then Tony Robbins like, oh, no, I only wanted to help. I didn't want to make his life harder, which it isn't. But he just doesn't like that. <laughs> he can't go out and chase women out of his league anymore wow. with a friend. So 
he's able to see how she really looks and then it's like that's the dilemma so what does he do is he going to stay with her as he as she is yeah. or is he going to try to get rehypnotized so he can see Gwyneth Paltrow but even though it's easy to make fun because of course you know the immediately when my mom sees the film she was just like it kills me how people think they deserve someone cute when they look like that but <laughs> I think that was a generational problem. It's been my experience. People really, and I don't know if it's their parents who kind of raised them in this, you can do anything you want to do and be anything you want to yeah. be, where they honestly rate themselves so much higher. And you think you, and you just wonder how can you as an adult not differentiate your parents trying to build your self-esteem with how you really are and how you like, how you rate with other people. That's hard. You know? But there's nothing wrong with that. Like, what's wrong with being average? Like, what's wrong with being a six or a seven? Like, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. I, you know, it just it is what it is. But unfortunately, people aren't there. They and I've had both men and women friends, and you're just like, stop, <laughs> just stop. You're you're great, but <laughs> but oh, where God. where did you get that? Like, even a few friends, I I will never forget when I finished my master's immediately three people I'm thinking of specifically said they wouldn't date someone without a master's. It's like, what? Oh, yeah, I remember. Like, as boring as you are, you should be... L- I don't know why you... And you don't even need it. Like, why do you need this man with the master's? You just need someone who's going to sit and be bored with you. That's what I want, everybody. FYI. Uh, what do I do that's so exciting where I have to have somebody who's this jet setter? Oh, people are annoying. Okay, we've digressed quite a bit. Uh, Yeah. Where were we in WeWork? We started talking about Gwyneth because she was a name dropper and kept going on and on about it. But even her whole thing about being a student of life. Yeah, being a student of life. Again, what does that mean? Well, nothing. No- nothing they say means anything. This is why it was so frustrating to watch. It just felt really... Un- I just... I couldn't believe that they... Everyone kept going on about the fact that they were so charismatic and they were such big personalities and they really drew you into this story how how he you know who he reminded me of a lot but you've not seen it the room in the room is that where they live in the room for a decade (laughs) no that's room (laughs) no the room is uh a classic what you must know which one i'm talking about no i i was silent because i thought you were going to give us an answer know it i can't even give a synopsis i we have to shit Okay, so okay. how's he like The Room? Is it so, so The Room was a film directed by this guy called Tommy Wiseau in, uh, I think it was uh, 2001 or 2002. Now, this guy was an Eastern European man. No one exactly knows where he, knows where he was from exactly, but he was a, probably in his mid-40s at the very least, living in LA and wanting to make it as an actor with Mm -hmm. a really, really strong Eastern European accent, a really odd look, tried to make it as like an actor, but trying to get cast as a lead actor, as like a young lead. And that's how he saw himself. So he decided in the end, he made a fortune. And again, no one really knows how, but he made lots of money. Um, There's a story that's Uh, That goes that he was selling wholesale clothes or something like that. Anyway, he made lots of money and he made his own film. And he cast himself as Johnny, the lead, young, blonde, handsome American. He cast um, his fellow student from his acting school as his um, best friend in the film. And and the guy's like 20. 
So how do you get the money though? Through is again, it his money? It's his money, and again through. Okay. Uh, it's from what I remember, it's not been a, it's not a verified source, but the story has it that he made lots of money through the clothes through selling clothes so nothing to do with the film industry mm. but it's i mean the story behind it is more unbelievable than the film um and very recently that's why i thought you might have at least heard about it um the so the guy who plays his friend in the film who mm-hmm. was also his uh, fellow student in the theater school they attended in LA he, his name is Greg Sestero and he was about to be big as an actor. He was like a young, handsome, handsome actor. And he made this film just because he was running out of money and Tommy Wiseau offered him a lot of money to be in it. And he just, his his career just crashed. There was no way, no way he was getting anywhere. So he, in the end, he became a producer and he wrote a book called The Disaster Artist about the making of The Room. And it's just jaw-dropping. It's unbelievable, the stories he tells. And it was made, the book was made into a film, it was adapted into a film by um, Franco, James Franco. There we go. It was adapted by uh, James Franco. So, I mean, th- this is for another, honestly, if you've not seen it, go watch it and then we'll talk about it. So this is for another time. There is so much to say about that film. I made Judy watch it. <laughs> and she was upset by it. I remember her reaction was that she was upset that we were laughing at a, a man who's basically bought into the American dream. And she was like, by laughing at him, we're laughing at ourselves. You know? That sounds like yeah. a duty response. You know what? That should be, we'll save it. Wait, yeah, we'll save it. And then we'll do it next time Judy comes on the podcast. So yeah, that should be what we talk about in the next, the next when she comes back. Okay. Go ahead, go go away and watch it. You will see what I mean. All this to say that Adam Newman reminded me of Tommy Wiseau. He is not a charismatic man. Now, I think actually Tommy Wiseau is probably a misunderstood genius given just how funny his film is. And in the end, how successful it was and actually gave him the Hollywood career he wants. Well, you know, a career in the film industry and some level of uh, recognition and notoriety. But Adam Newman doesn't even have that. He's just a really awkward looking man who spouts loads of rubbish. But maybe that's what it was, right? Maybe he was also selling the American dream. And maybe that's because there is an aspect of uh, when you look at the self-help gurus, because I just watched a documentary. (laughs) Of course I did, right? I just watched... Why am I saying a documentary? It was not a documentary. It was an anti-MLM commentator on uh, who who's the one who, let me see, girl, she wrote that. Oh, yeah, by Rachel Hollis. So she was a self-help guru that's recently fallen out of grace because, well, it was a few reasons, but she got a divorce, but she was charging people to go to these marriage boot camps and she was posting on her social media what a great marriage she had. And then when she announced the divorce, she said they'd have problems for years. So it's like, well, why were you t- telling people to come and tell them how to have a great marriage? You can't get worse <laughs> than that. Especially if her claim to fame was about yeah. empowering conservative white Christian women in the Midwest. Why did you even need to bring in something for couples other than you want to make more money, right? Or maybe she did think she was helping people, who knows? But you, when you look at what she says, it is all just, it's like Oprah. It's like a neoliberal thing. Don't worry about 
structural things that yeah. cause your problem, wash your face. Don't worry about the fact that this MLM makes it completely impossible for you to make any money. You keep grinding. You do you. Ignore <laughs> the haters. <laughs> like everything, like the 90s threw up. The 90s mantras threw up online and people loved it. And it's similar, like you're saying, to what he was talking about. Like to me, it was nothing profound. I had the same thought when you were talking mm-hmm. about the uh, Nexum cult. He didn't say anything no. profound to me. It just people would say that was profound after in the clip. It's like he didn't. What? I, that's why I almost wonder. I feel like more people need to be raised in church. You question how these people are being raised where they feel so empty. Like, how is it that you have children in your house for 18 years and they leave and they feel empty inside and that someone has to tell them what their purpose is? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Honestly, honestly, in that, and you at least one thing you can say, and that's why I said they ha- they do have free time because at least that's <laughs> one positive thing about being working class or poor. Like your purpose is to be part of your family mm-hmm. and to help them financially and to be there for other people and work together. At least then that gives you something to be a part of so that you're not just that's out it. here. That's it, it's people looking to be part of something bigger. And those kinds of disruptive movements have replaced politics, they've replaced religion, they've replaced family in a lot of cases. Yeah, because you're not being with people who you have a shared interest with in terms of politics or shared belief system in terms of religion. Yeah. Um, And but I don't know. I I agree. It was it was nothing. And I, you know, I've talked to you about that when I was, you know, in London going to those events. Right. And these speakers were. Then at some of them, not all of them, there were many that were very, very good, but just disclaimer. So I'm not painting them all with the same brush. There were a few times, though, where I went to these events and it was like people trying to mimic Baptist preachers that I grew up with who were 10 times the presenters and speakers they were. And I'm like, you people like this crap? Like, none of this isn't even good. Um, so that's what I can say. That's. I thought there were many benefits to being raised in church, but that was one of them. Like, you've got to be an excellent speaker to impress me. Yeah. Because I feel like I have seen some amazing people in my time yeah yeah and this is all we're left who now, really right? know how to pull in a crowd who really know how to get you excited maybe that's why you know i didn't go to a concert till i was in my <laughs> 20s i just i had a concert every sunday <laughs> great speakers great music you know people get the holy spirit Doo-doo-doo. i can still hear the music <laughs> tambourine i can still hear it so Maybe, you you know, it would take more to reel people in where it's like, well, if I want that, you know, I can go home and be with my family or be with yeah. my minister. And instead of. Yeah. And, and But I don't know. I, I will say, though, what did you think about the we live? I thought that looked kind of fun if there were bigger space, because, you know, me, I don't want to share a kitchen. It, I was reminded of uh, the thing you told me about um, the sort of commune type housing block that you were telling me about in Norway or somewhere oh. somewhere in Northern Europe? Well, I told you about a couple, but but that when you had your own kitchen, but there was a communal kitchen yeah. downstairs, exactly. A communal kitchen and living room downstairs, but yeah. you did have your Which own Which I like. Well. I actually really yeah. like the concept of yeah. having something like that. Now, again, I don't think, I don't like it in the uh, we iteration, so massively overpriced, tiny... <laughs> Well, they never told you the price, did they? They just told you that no, they got discounts. In the documentary, they do mention. Okay. Don't they mention oh, how okay. much the rent is for, like, basically a cabin and on a cruise ship? 
Yeah, I didn't think they did, but how much I can't remember, remember, but ah, now there is another documentary about WeWork that was made as part of a 10-part docu-series produced by Alex Gibney. Do you know who Alex Gibney is? No. He's a very uh, trendy filmmaker, documentary filmmaker at the moment. He, he did um, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room a few years ago which was very good but he's mostly well known for Going Clear which was a documentary about Scientology no I've seen both of those oh yes. right well he's he's the director he makes very good documentaries and he produced this 10 part docuseries um, you'll be interested in this where each episode focuses on it's called Generation Hustle so it's you know Ooh. living on thin air basically to echo Richard uh, Ledbetter's old saying so one episode is on WeWork. So maybe it was in that where they brought up how much the rent was. But overall, it was very overpriced for what it I'm was. I'm sorry. What's it called? Generation what? Hustle. Generation Hustle. Well, okay. I, I Googled it. Okay. It says the four bedroom was 8000 a month. It was thirty fifty for the one bedroom. And it says that the studios started at twenty five fifty. Okay, well, I mean um, that, but this is in New York, so it says yeah. studios fall into the range of um, in New York's financial district of twenty two hundred to thirty four. So that wasn't um, that seems like that was, and it came furnished. I don't know. Most most things you rent here come furnished as well. Well, in in the U.S., it's not like that, okay. um, which is funny because I remember when I was, well, long story short, I found out that um, my mom told me that that was the case. So when she, you know, first got married, that was more common to have, but that mm -hmm. was in the 70s. So by the time the 90s and the 2000s roll around, I'd never heard of a furnished apartment. Yeah. Um, so in New York, they don't have that. I mean, I've seen it sometimes, but then that's why they have it bold. But I know in London that's typical where things are furnished and it's yeah. atypical to say, wait, I have to bring my own furniture. So, yeah, in New York, you would furnish your own place, which is another thing that made the We Live stand out because it was supposed. And I don't know how true this was. They, But they seemed to confirm it in the documentary that yeah. they had nice furniture. So it wasn't which IKEA. Is, yeah, which Nothing is by the IKEA. by. But the, the ethics of this, which I would like to see, is a kind of housing association concept that's know fairly priced and accessible i think that's the whole ethos of such a place otherwise all you're getting is like a little ghetto of rich people no exactly and i think um well, i think he used enclave when it, it's rich but <laughs> yes but nevertheless <laughs> i know exactly what you mean because that's what i was thinking about too right because what we were talking about the example that i can't remember specifically what it is that was the beauty of it is it was a combination of like two and three bedroom apartments yeah. as well as one bedrooms for older people. So the idea was that older people would be living in families, not in some senior community. So I think what you're saying reminds me that we should be thinking of like big cooperative spaces yeah. with multiple units so that people can rotate out, right? So as you retire and your children move out, you should be able to move to the smaller units so that families come, come in and take the bigger units and you can have a shared living as opposed to because that's one of the criticisms that I think is valid about having the sort of housing where mm -hmm. one person gets subsidized housing, but it's just for their unit and they can't take that with them. And so then you have one old person in this huge place for low cost and families paying much more for um, something smaller. 
So, but yeah, but you, exactly. It should be co-owned. They're working together to manage it and people are yeah rotating out. Yeah. But for people who are making living wage, not the wealthy people, because the example that I saw were, I don't think that was for even middle income families. I think you had to have a bit of, you know, bit of upper middle class to be in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the issue with We Live, ultimately. <laughs> but even the other thing, too, he was talking about where you slowly became distanced from your friends because you had your yeah. building mates became your friends. And when you said you had a party to go to, it wasn't where it was what floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, it feels a bit cultish instead of community based. Right, because community, you're supposed to be bringing people in. Yeah. As opposed to, so, but as he said, all the friends visit at once, they're like, I'm good. <laughs> they came to visit them once and they didn't come back. So I don't I don't think it was them isolating. I think it was also the friends distancing, like, oh, no. <laughs> We've lost Darren. <laughs> On that note, is there anything else you'd like to bring up about WeWork before we wrap up? One other, yeah, one other thing, just about greed. What role did you think it paid there? Because there is, right, as... I believe that was the opening to the documentary is that the VC community is looking for the unicorn. And I think as we were talking about how you scapegoat individuals, I think in some ways Adam is being scapegoated. And when in fact it's a much bigger problem because he only kept getting propped up because they're looking for that unicorn. And once that was valued so high, then everybody wanted in and no one stepped back to say, how's that possible? It's a real estate company. True. But he was also culpable by throwing everyone under the bus and then leaving with a few million dollars. Oh, I think he left with more than a oh, few or million. A billion or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't know what he settled for, right? Because it sounds like he did have to give some of that money back. Um, but but it's, it's still that other thing. Like, why is it that that's how value is created through these companies that yeah. don't really, because even other startups, they don't employ that many people to give the credit that they're given for creating all these jobs and opportunities. It's like, are you really like, are we crunching numbers here to look at, is that true? Or is that just the PR? Um, because ultimately VC is about making more money. It's not about building jobs or building industries. It's, it's to make money. Yeah. So we should be questioning that setup. Is that the right word? <laughs> yeah. Um, even though, yeah, he is culpable. But, the, you know, they also didn't talk about the other co-founder. Well, even though he was the second co-founder, but then became the third co-founder. Yeah, we yeah. didn't get too much about his story. Like, where was he during all this? That's true. We don't know what he ended up with. Or what he thought beyond third parties saying, like, oh, he didn't like how the wife was brought in. Yeah. Did he? I mean, I don't know, because we didn't, didn't get a quote from him. So, um, so yes. Okay. So, yeah, no, nothing else for me. Just those just those two things but yeah that's it for from us and we work the documentary check it out i will put links in the blurb again leave us comments and feedback on uh, via twitter or via our website do feel free to send in recommendations and until next time thanks for listening <laughs>